Welcome to the Backyard Professor videos on a Sunday night. I am really excited to bring my guest on here in just a moment. Uh, we've got Dan Vogel in the studio. So I think he's just typing you guys a chat message real quick. So let's get the official start going and we shall be right on. So welcome, everybody. I'm really excited to have y'all here. I have one of the coolest guests on the planet. I don't want you to tell him I said that, however, because he would be probably pretty upset and embarrassed because I'm praising him so well. But he needs no introduction, but I am going to introduce him anyway. Dan Vogel. Hello, young man. Hello, everybody. <laughs> I caught you goofing off, didn't I? <laughs> Good to be here. It is great to see you again, my friend. So how you been? Oh, okay. No, nothing new. What? No new books? No new articles? I am working on my uh, second video on masonry. Okay, then that's new, yes. And don't forget, you guys, to take a look at his video on masonry. I've got to get over here to the comments so I can see what's going on, for Pete's sake. Oh, looks like John Ross Barsky and Newton Lemos. Mo, see ya. How you doing, man? Doug Vincent, good to see you. Wendy Rowland, John Laws. If I miss any of you, forgive me. Grandmaman, yes. Peter Higgs, Issa Mora, Cheryl Bruno. Hello, Cheryl, darling. How are you? T.O., good to see you, man. Okay, well, it looks like we've got a pretty decent crowd. There's only six people here tonight, so, oh, wait, that's 46, <laughs> 48. Oh, so, Dan, God. we're going we're gonna to have to behave, young man, while we discuss some interesting things tonight. However, uh, an idea struck me in my head the other day, and I thought, you know, I know that my audience is probably pretty familiar with you and uh, and some of your work but uh i i'm one of those nut jobs that after farms got eviscerated and kicked out and and halted i kept all of their materials man <laughs> i kept all of their farms review books and and all that jazz i got looking through them the other night to see hey i wonder who said what about dan vogel and so I found some things that I want to share with my audience in order for you guys to see the impact 
of Dan Vogel's Material and Research. So this is out of the review books on the Book of Mormon, Volume 2, 1990. And this was reviewed by Kevin Christensen. Do you remember him, Dan? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's still around. Yeah, yeah, he is. Thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, Dan Vogel, Indian Origins in the Book of Mormon, which is a wonderful little book. That was actually the first book I bought of yours, Dan, and read it. And that was when I was a full-blown apologist. Actually, I think it was before I was an apologist. And uh, so here's what Kevin and it, said. And it didn't have any effect on you. It didn't. It strengthened <laughs> my testimony. <laughs> here's what Kevin said about Vogel. He said at the outset of his book, Dan Vogel states his intention to outline the broad contours of public discussion about the ancient inhabitants of America up to 1830 and to determine the extent to which the Book of Mormon may have been a part of that discussion. As such, Vogel provides a timely survey and a useful bibliography, especially for those interested in B.H. Roberts' studies of the Book of Mormon, but who may feel that the older book represents an incomplete survey, one scholar wide and 50 yards deep. Then he goes on to say, toward the end of his essay, he disagreed with you, by the way, Dan, <laughs> just as you well remember. Vogel is a talented and energetic scholar, and the world of Mormon letters is bound to be stimulated by his contributions. Book of Mormon scholarship can only benefit from diverse approaches. Now, you wrote your book, Dan, in order to get poor Kevin Christensen excommunicated by praising you, didn't you? Come on, fess up. <laughs> I didn't know who he was. And oh, oh, that's what is it, 1986... Is when that book came out and his review came out right after that. And I remember reading it, didn't know how really what to do with it. Cause it really doesn't talk too much about the book itself. It talks more about methodology and, and Thomas Kuhn. Yeah. Thomas Kuhn. And, you know, yeah, uh, this was Kevin Christensen's great splash into the world of apologetics and every single book review he does, he brings up Thomas Kuhn, including yeah. my review of uh, what's his nose, Thomas Riscus Deconstructing Mormonism. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. Here's another quick one real quick, and then we'll get on to what you have to say. Review books on the Book of Mormon, Volume 3, 1991. This was a couple of years later. Now, this is... Oh, yes. This is your favorite Mormon scholar, Dan. Lou Midgley. He says in 1988, Marvin S. Hill described Dan Vogel as a disaffected Mormon. If Hill is correct, we have an explanation for the bias found in the articles Vogel has assembled in his essays on Mormon scripture. Vogel was incensed by Hill's remarks. You were incensed, he says. And then he says, a disenchanted Vogel once found a patron in the late Reverend Walters, but sensing that he is not likely to be taken seriously if his revisionist agenda were widely known, Vogel now poses as one interested, interested in making available what the cover of Essays on Mormon Scripture calls timely and thought-provoking discussions of Mormon canon. I get the impression, Dan, that Lou Misley never did like you much. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, um, yeah, you know, <laughs> come on, fess up. You I want think to you wrote that around what 
he wrote that around 1990. Yeah, yeah, I think he wrote it in 1990 and he published it in 91. So and, that was, uh, well, what does he think now? Right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I, I think he's so old and cranky at this point that um, I see him over on Dan Peterson's blog, Sick at Non, all the time, and he's not real nice to a lot of people. So here's another one real quick by Martin S. Tanner. Yeah, yeah well, he treated me better than he did the Tanners, put it that way. <laughs> I think he treated Remember, everybody better than he treated He went to the store and caused a big scene. <laughs> yeah, you, you, had the, uh, you had the golden shoe compared to how he treated the Tanners, that's for sure. Martin S. Tanner said, I found chapter two, the anti-universalist rhetoric in the Book of Mormon by Dan Vogel, quite fascinating. So there's a scholar who was impressed. Now, what, what interests me now is this. I, I'm not going to go through all these. I know that people want to talk to you. Well, here's another one, though, that says in your fascinating study of the anti-universal rhetoric. So there were several people who found you utterly fascinating in your anti-universal rhetoric. But Richard Bushman, you remember his critique of you? And this was in the wonderful book, The Worlds of Joseph Smith. And this was the Bicentennial uh, Conference at the Library of Congress in 2000. Here's what Bushman said about your biography of Joseph Smith. And this isn't to put you on the spot. It's just, I, I think it's interesting to see the uh, reactions and counter reactions and to see the variety of responses to your work. You gathered some big names in the Mormon world to respond to you. That's the point I'm making here. I mean, Bushman is nobody's fool, you know, and, and uh, so he says Vogel's work diminishes Joseph Smith by limiting the prophet's cultural historical horizon. All of the narrowly Americanist accounts strip the prophet of grandeur and depth even of the gothic horror of the religious fanatic. Brody and Bogle will always be a part of the historiography of Joseph Smith, but they do not open new vistas for readers. They pile on more without going beyond Riley's original insight. By constricting Joseph Smith's historical horizon, they reduce him to a colorful fraud, and they have no way of plumbing his depths or putting him in a broader perspective. What do you think of that? Well, the, I put him in as broad a perspective as I can, leaving out God. <laughs> Here's my oh. impression. Here's my impression. <laughs> now, now that whole that whole group of and, and there were non-Mormons there in that Congress also, but the whole group of apologists, what they were doing was mythologizing Joseph Smith. They are, it appears to me anyway, that what Bushman wants people to do with Joseph Smith is make him much grander than any other human. And so it appears to me that he's critiquing you from that perspective of, oh, hey, Joseph Smith is the greatest and Dan Vogel's not seeing the point. So Dan Vogel's minimizing our magnificent, huge, cosmologically important Joseph Smith 
down to an actual historical person. From my perspective, based on what I've read of your work, and I have read Bushman, that is one hell of a compliment. He's saying, not to put words in his mouth, but he's saying Dan Vogel is the real historian among us. We, we want to make Joseph bigger than he really was. So I, I thought that was kind of fun to see that comparison contrast. I was still, I was still an apologist when I read this book. And I actually marked that passage when I first read it. And I thought, I, I'm not so sure if that's what Vogel's doing or not. So that's when I actually began to look into your stuff a little bit more with, with greater care as an apologist was that Bushman article. So I, I thought that was fun. So, All right, young man, that's enough of listening to me. Well, I, I would say add that that's apologist sure. goal is to get you not to read it. Bingo. And Bushman, the irony is on Bushman is that a lot of people think he wrote an anti-Mormon book. Yes, excellent point. Yeah, in his... Yes. Uh, He's gotten world. into trouble for making Joseph Smith more human than uh, the other biographers or commentators or interpreters, uh, the faithful interpreters of joseph smith so um that's an excellent point when did he write his rough stone rolling 2005 i think it was oh you got a mind like a steel trap brother yeah 2005 well so, i remember because it was the year after mine that's right that's right and, it was. Um, it was and, and yours influenced him to do this book or without question so well, see within five years Bushman himself was calling for a change of narrative. Isn't that interesting? In 2000, he was critiquing you saying, you're not making Joseph Smith grand enough. And then by 2005, he was saying, oh, by the way, here's the more human Joseph Smith. And I actually saw Mormons online saying, hey, don't, don't go after, don't read this book. This book is horrible. It's an anti-Mormon book. There were people who contacted the church apparently and said what are you doing letting one of your historians publish crap like that isn't that fascinating yeah well yeah. also he got in trouble for using too much of my stuff really in this book yeah if you look in the the um uh bibliography you'll see there's a lot of uh, references to my works and there wasn't any to farms uh right you know or very little <laughs> that's and they a got, win <laughs> they got upset about the disparity you know kind of implying that maybe he was too sympathetic with critics okay folks you want to see that dan vogel is not kidding he's not just pulling your leg or anything i'm gonna hold this up in there there's there's vogel's there's Vogel's list. He's got everything Vogel ever wrote, and then it continues on to the next page. Yeah, he used Dan Vogel and Brent Lee Metcalf. He used Dan Vogel and Scott C. Dunn. He used Dan Vogel and Brent Lee Metcalf. Uh, he used the vast majority of what Dan had published in order to produce this history book. So Really, folks, seriously, the impact uh, <clears throat> of 
mogul is is quite quite immense uh my my favorite impact two of my favorites if i can keep going just for a minute mike ash 80 reasons for faith and reason the interesting thing he did in this book is on the Joseph Smith chapter where he retrieved real artifacts from Moroni stone box in the footnotes for the first five references that Ash used to verify Joseph Smith. He used Dan Vogel's early Mormon documents, all five volumes. Well, actually he used volume one five different times, six different times. So he uses Vogel to establish something about the validity of Joseph Smith in Vogel's historical documents. But yet he ignored you, Dan. He ignored you. I noticed he has none of the information on the reliability of the witnesses that you wrote in American Apocrypha, which I think is one of the greatest articles you've ever written. So... <laughs> Again, that's that's uh, that's the fun of of having someone who gives us a real impact here. So, I have fun with with approaching um, various angles, and so that was one reason why I wanted you on tonight because you've you have been at the forefront of giving the thing I love about you, and I know is is your bravery. You just, you put it out there. You know you have a different view than most Mormon scholars. You know they're going to kick you. You know they're going to scratch you and bite you. And yet you keep writing what you're writing based on the historical materials as you can gather, which Kevin Christensen says, and Larry Morris also says, it's absolutely astonishing how much information Dan Vogel gathers to produce his history materials. So you've talked about this anti-Masonic book. Tell us, tell us a little bit. See, here's where the typical, here's where the typical person jumps off the bus from you, and I couldn't understand it until you explained it to me. How is it that you think the Book of Mormon is anti-Masonic when? Joseph's family and his friends, they were all Masons. And then later on, Joseph Smith himself became a Mason. To, to, to the regular person, that looks like a, a discrepancy. Tell us, tell us your modus operandi here. How, how did you acquire that? How did you come up with the anti-Masonic rhetoric theme? Well, the Book of Mormon has been... Uh identified as anti-Masonic from right at the beginning. Um, even Martin Harris in 1831, I think it is, um, is quoted in the Geauga Gazette uh, is saying that the Book of Mormon is the anti-Masonic Bible. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, that's got to get your attention. <laughs> <laughs> I should say so. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't just anti-Mormons. I mean, I mean E.D. Howe is a good example. He, he assumed uh, the Book of Mormon was pro-Mason because uh, uh, some uh, newspaper article had said that most, uh, a lot of Mormons were Masons. And then he read the Book of Mormon, that is, and mm -hmm. changed his mind. 
about it and started publishing that it was anti-Masonic, obviously anti-Masonic, and he would quote passages out of it. So the, the Book of Mormon's anti-Masonry is undeniable. I don't think the authors that we're talking about today uh, deny that part of the Book of Mormon itself. They just try to uh, harmonize it with the later uh, position of Joseph Smith uh, and try to say that it was, you know, a selected part of masonry, not all of masonry. It was spurious masons, not all of masons. And that's what we're going to get into uh, as we uh, uh, partly allow them to say what they have to say and um, for me to make uh, maybe some comments or you to make some comments. In Method Infinite, you mean? Uh, method Infinite. That's yeah, yeah, go ahead. T t take over. You bet. Let let's see what you have to say. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, will, so I will yell at you later. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to give some historical perspectives, things that I see as I'm going through uh, due to my studies. Um, I'm not here to, like, have a big, uh, you know, you know, uh, battle over it. I'm just presenting <laughs> present my views. Right here. <laughs> no, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we, we want all perspectives so that we can, this will give us a better rounded out historical detail analysis. So this is what we're looking for. Right. Just kind of um, how somebody else that knows something about the subject views there what they have written so um we're just going to go through kind of systematically we might not get through the whole book because i'm mostly concerned with the beginning part anyway um getting some things accurately and then we can talk about them and hopefully you'll know mo more about this subject through this process sure than you would have if you would have just read this uh, here. So we're going to start with the introduction because that's where they lay out their methodology and their overall perspective on the subject. Um, and right off, there's uh, uh, the authors present the idea that why did Joseph Smith become a Mason in Nauvoo? <laughs> you know, why did he do that? It seemed like a reversal. And some Mormons uh, did see it as a reversal of the Book of Mormon when he started pushing masonry and even the Danites. But um, so it wasn't uh, just like accepted. It was seen as by some members that expressed themselves in print even that there was a contradiction, a sudden contradiction. Yeah. Yeah. So um they begin by quoting uh, Franklin D. Richards in 1899. And at a meeting, he uh, said that uh, Joseph the prophet was aware that there were some things about masonry which had come down from the beginning, and he desired to know what they were, hence the lodge, the Nauvoo Lodge, that is. The masons admitted some keys of knowledge pertaining to masonry were lost. Joseph inquired of the Lord concerning the matter, and he revealed to the prophet true masonry. 
as we have it in our temples. Owing to the superior knowledge uh, Joseph had received, the Masons became jealous and cut off the Mormon lodge. Okay, so I'm going to challenge that interpretation because it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have to join Mason, the Masons, to find out what parts were true and how much truth they had. He, he already knew about the at least the three, uh, the first three degrees from Morgan's book. Um, there was also um, things were printed. They were in print. Uh, the Wayne Sentinel um, published the, the Knights Templar, the, the text of the Knights Templar in the Wayne Sentinel on the 14th of March, 1828. Interesting. So, yeah. Kids used to play in the streets and they would act out some of the ceremonies. Okay. It was Interesting. so yeah. widely known that Joseph Smith wouldn't have to join to find out. And he certainly, certainly wouldn't have to establish a whole Nauvoo Lodge, you know, uh, just to go and find out uh, what, how much they had and what was uh, the, the substance of their ceremonies. So yeah. this explanation by Richards seems more apologetic, more kind of, uh, you know, kind of a Mormon explanation of things, trying to smooth over uh, what had happened in Nauvoo. And uh, calling it true, Ma the endowment true masonry is, is almost like calling Mormonism true uh, Methodism. It doesn't make any sense. How so? Explain that for us. I, I, yeah. So, so, so what, how, do you, how do you mean that? That's interesting. So. I mean, Joseph Smith restored the true church. Okay. He didn't restore the true Methodism or true Presbyterianism. He restored the true church, and uh, they that they had apostatized from. So he wasn't restoring them. So same thing okay. with Masonry. Okay. He established the endowment, and the endowment, you know, has some parallels, but it isn't like a total borrowing. It's a Mormonized version, you know. Uh, okay. He borrowed basically minimal things, I believe. But uh, no, that's an while, interesting approach. That, that I, I get, I get the angle that you're coming at. That's, that's well, I'm just trying uh, trying to explain Franklin Franklin D. Richards. Right, right. And he's given this right. explanation out that doesn't really make any sense. Okay, uh -huh. what makes more sense, and what the majority of scholars have decided is that he joined for social reasons uh, to strengthen his position in Illinois because masonry was so popular. He also uh, wanted its protection that he needed and wanted to avoid a similar situation that he had just escaped from in Missouri. So the, you know, craft the brotherhood or you know once you became a brother they were bound by oath to protect you and this would be a smart move on joseph smith's part actually to do okay. this yeah. uh that's that's actually what uh i've got this book here by john witzo 
the evidences and reconciliations. I've got it in three volumes. And that was his stance uh, of why did Joseph Smith become a Mason? Because the ideal agreed with the high ideals of the prophet for brotherhood, protection, they needed yeah. friends, et cetera. That, that seemed to have been John Witzow's thought as well. So, so that's how you're saying Joseph Smith was involved with masonry. Yeah, yeah, Joseph Smith did a lot of things to protect himself in Nauvoo. To right, right. prevent a, a repeat of Missouri. One was establishing uh, the Nauvoo Charter that had a really liberal um, habeas corpus uh, provision in it, where more or less, uh, if he were arrested, he would be he had to be taken before a magistrate there in Nauvoo, who would review the merits of. The arrest is supposed to do the merits of the arrest, whether the papers are in order and stuff. But it was so liberal that the judge could actually review the legitimacy of the arrest warrant, which no other place did that. I mean, so they eventually that was taken out. But uh, he did that to protect himself. And it worked. And uh, on yeah. on. Uh, several occasions so so the authors have to um so what page you on right now yeah you're on the very front okay, so now okay that was the very first uh page of the introduction now we're going to go a couple of pages to what is uh 17 in roman numerals um and this is where um, there's an argument against seeing it besides a sincere belief in masonry, uh, which our authors uh, are uh, arguing for. Some, some writers have attempted to explain Smith's involvement in masonry as a 19th century equivalent of social and political networking. However, to allege that he became a Mason in order to court special or social connections or political power is defamatory. And, and defamatory. You, don't, you, don't think, you don't think they have that quite accurate then? They're accusing anybody that doesn't have the inter their interpretation of trying to defame Joe Smith. That's a subtle ad hominem. Well, well I, I didn't read it that way. That's an interesting take on it. I know. <laughs> I know. I read the subtle things. Okay. In his <laughs> petition, the implied argument, there's implied argument, there's, there's out and out arguments, you know, uh, and then there's implied arguments, which lead okay. to, it leads okay. to uh, making fallacious arguments. Anyway, how dare us try to defame Joseph Smith? But um, in his petition to re uh, receive the degrees of Freemasonry, um, Smith would have su uh, submitted a written statement that he had no mercenary motive for entering the fraternity. Well, you know, if he entered the well, that, fraternity... What, I think what they're saying is it would have been defamatory 
about Joseph Smith's intentions of telling the Masons why he wanted to join them, because they're indicating don't don't no, you see? no. It says it says to allege that he became a Mason in order to. He's talk. They're talking about me, <laughs> you know, or any other historic. The majority of historians have a different interpretation that we're being defamatory towards Joseph Smith. We're impugning his character. Um, but it says that he would have to, uh, he had the pledge that he had no mercenary, uh, mercenary motive for entering the fraternity. Thus, to claim that Joseph Smith and his brethren sought membership in the Masonic Lodge because they desired the prestige, protection, and power such an alliance should have guaranteed is to argue against the integrity of the prophet and his companions. Well, okay. Their their position is that he entered in order to just find out what they were doing. I, I mean, that's less defamatory. Interesting. Yeah. I mean. okay. yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I see how you're taking this. Uh huh. So I have an objection to this line of, of argumentation. Yes. And, and that's um, why we want you to expound on it. <laughs> Absolutely. That's interesting. So on the next page. Um, hey, uh, just so you know, Dan, someone is saying that you and I have matching glasses. You want to tell them what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> no. No? Okay. No. Um, Dan has two pair of glasses on. One of them's a magnifying pair. <laughs> Sorry, I gave you That's secret. my right. secret. I feel bad about that. I do. <laughs> Is RFM here? <laughs> Not yet, but he's going to show up soon. He better. Okay. It's my old eyes. Um, it's all good. It's only when I'm reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about Reed C. Durham, you know, in the 1970s, he came out with, "Is there's, there's no help. Is there no help for the widow's son? Yeah, they, great Smith uh, at the martyrdom. Right. Uh, yeah. Use that. Um, the reaction to it was astonishing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it blew my mind. It was, I mean, it still it was, does. It just, wow. <laughs> nobody knew about the Jupiter talisman, you know? You think that's um, what got him in trouble or how he tied in yeah. his death mean, so meaningfully with the Enoch legend of masonry? I don't know. And he, he did present the, the Enoch uh, legend, yes. Yeah. From the Royal Arch. That's amazing that the Mormon leadership at that time made Durham go apologize and reaffirm his faith in Joseph Smith as if he was trying to destroy Joseph Smith. He wasn't trying to destroy Joseph Smith. He was bringing in another flipping dimension that the Mormons thanks to Boyd K. Packer, didn't feel was very useful history, and so they have the wrong Joseph Smith. I, it's just mind-boggling. Anyway, yeah, sorry. There was a huge reaction at the time. Yeah. I have, like, the original newspaper in my files, but oh, how where, cool. where they first printed it. Uh, yeah. And it was connecting Joseph Smith with the occult was the the Jupiter talisman that everybody... That, uh, that's what blew everybody's mind. drawn to. Um... <sighs> Anyway, um, so then they say on the next page, 18, um, aspects of Masonic legend seem transformed into history 
of Joseph Smith, so much so that it appears to be a kind of symbolic acting out of Masonic lore. And Durham mentioned he his focus was on the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith's assassination. Right. Leaving, leaving later researchers the task of fully investigating other possible parallels. Well, no. the no. problem I have with this is the setting up of a meta meta narrative, which is um, a story for Joseph Smith's whole life and the thread of masonry running through it. And it's more about the interpreters trying to make it fit this narrative than it is about, well, what, who's going to live a life that, that um, acts out Masonic lore? I mean, how does that, how does that take place? Is God going to manipulate Joseph's life so it fits this Masonic uh, lore? that Joseph Smith later rejected as being apostate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't understand this. Uh, so the meta narrative is a, is a, a problem with historians because it sounds more like 19th century history writing than it does modern uh, critical historical okay. methodology. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the meta narrative here, on your take, probably isn't as accurate as you would want as a historian. Why would you try to do that? Is to just perhaps okay, you're trying to get a larger context of the entire. Most Mormons think that the only most Mormons, and I was one of them, truly. Um, I mean, given them the benefit of the doubt for a moment, most Mormons. Uh, just realized Joseph Smith was involved in masonry for about one year at the very end of his life. And so it appears to me like they're attempting in their meta narrative to get a, a broader historical context because we know Joseph Smith could not possibly have just by the time 1842 rolled around at the end of his life, he goes, oh, look, there's some masons. I think I'll become one. My impression with their meta narrative is really an excellent approach. I know I'm differing with you. It's all good. That's but, okay. But but the 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 basic historical contextualization that they're doing from even before Joseph Smith was born, all the way through his life with all the exposés, including all of the discussions in newspapers back then make it seem very unrealistic if Joseph Smith was not acquainted with masonry and influenced by it throughout his life. That's my impression of their meta-narrative, and I rather enjoyed that. So I'm not trying to argue with you. I'm just saying the meta-narrative in this sense, for me, helped me appreciate the subject better. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, for me, you keep going. I get your point on the merit meta narrative. It can be abused, uh, and so well, that's what historians have to watch. If you have a, this meta narrative that Joe Smith is the great restorer of masonry from, you know, the beginning, then okay. you can't have the Book of Mormon be an anti Masonic. So that meta narrative makes you want to change that that part he can't contradict himself 
And for me, Joe Smith contradicted himself. It's easier, the Occam's razor will say that it's easier to just accept the fact that Joe Smith contradicted himself. He contradicted himself on a lot of subjects and he didn't seem to mind. <laughs> you know? Okay, I, I see your point. It, uh, my wife told me earlier today, she said, you know, this morning's podcast was sensational, but you said interesting way too many times. So yell at me if I keep saying, oh, that's interesting. But for me, it really is interesting. <laughs> so, so there you have it. <laughs> yeah. it All right, it, I appreciate it. Yeah, that, that, that's that's like, uh, that you have. Um. So then we go on to the next page, 19, uh, where they quote Jack Adamson. I don't know exactly who he is, really. I, I didn't who read this. Who at? Hold on. XIX, right? 19 yeah. in the preface. Okay. XIX at the top, but the name is at the bottom of the previous page. Oh, I, I see. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the beginning of the paragraph. And right. uh, so... Um, he says in, uh, in a similar fashion that Reed Durham said, a symbolic acting out of Masonic lore, he says in this event, symbol is not merely transformed into Joseph's inner history or his sacred writings. Rather, the action goes beyond metaphor and the symbol merges into tragic reality. This was kind Did of Reed Durham's wind-up comment, too. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's similar. But here we have somebody's life with, is, is an, uh, going beyond the metaphor, the Masonic metaphor, and becoming the symbol merges into uh, tragic reality. I mean, how does that happen? Except for the interpreter making it so. <laughs> you know, so nobody lives a life that goes beyond, it has anything to do with the, the, a metaphor and going beyond metaphor and their life uh, takes symbol, the symbol oh, I don't know. reality. I mean, I is that know. determinism of some shape or form you know mm -hmm. what's going on here <laughs> so that's a great these, question these, yeah these 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 kind of stories happen in fiction they don't happen oh, in per, perhaps perhaps hey based on what uh we kind of said earlier um th this might be a mythologizing of joseph smith would you agree with that Yes. Making him grander, perhaps, uh, for Masonic eyes. Yes. History is not predetermined. You know, it happens. You mean you're not a Calvinist? No. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a determinist either. So, um, you're not a universalist like Joseph Smith was either. I read your article this morning, that was sensational. I loved how you used yeah, the universalism. Yeah, yeah, the universalism. You uh, did a, a really good job of emphasizing the turning oh, points. Thank you. And thank you. Really well, see, job. that was this was the second time I read that article just this last week because I knew you were coming on tonight, 
And so I wanted to get everybody in the mood for Dan Vogel. And the, uh, the interesting thing was I had not caught the emphasis on universalism the first time. And so that was one reason why I wanted to present that. But yeah, interesting. All right. So we'll let that sit. So some of these things I'm just going to let percolate. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think yeah, about all it. of this percolates. What's going on? Um, so we get to uh, 20, page 20. Yep. And this is where we get to uh, this book will present evidence that Joseph Smith's actions in tandem with those of the Masonic Mormon Masonic lodges were diametrically opposed to what they would have been if the object in joining with masonry was gaining allies. So it has to be that if Joseph Smith uh, screwed it up and the Masons ended up hating him, that, that tells you why, what his motivation was when he joined. It wasn't. So? Ex explain it wasn't that. Explain that for us. <laughs> it wasn't to get along and uh, use it as social connections, even though, you know, if he uh, went there to um, have them take, they become brothers in an oath to protect one another, that still applies no matter what. So, right or wrong or whatever, you're to protect them, right? Whether they're right or wrong. And, um, so it's trying to use um, it, it. The implied argument is that Joseph Smith can't contradict himself. If he did this, which I don't agree with the statement in the first place, but if he did this, he would be contradicting himself. Therefore, that's not why he did it. Now and you're saying you're saying that is the author's assumption here. That's the argument that's presented. presented. Is that this book will present evidence that uh, it. So that's not your idea. No, we're. Oh. If, uh, that Joseph Smith's actions were diametrically opposed to what they would have been if the object in joining with Freemasonry masonry was ga gaining allies. So. That would be a contradiction. Why would he screw it up? You know, if he joined to get allies and then later screwed it up, uh, that would not make any sense. Well, he 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 thought though. He must have wanted to make enemies. That's why he joined. He thought he was restoring a true masonry. Well, he no, he should yeah. have first converted everybody to Mormonism, shouldn't he? <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah. So. So what he joined in order to make enemies, or you know, why? Well, why? No, I mean, as, as it evolved and changed, as he was adding more and more, and part of the part of the uh, irregularities was his including women in the endowment, if I remember the history record right. But so I mean, it's not like he was intending to make anybody mad. He was just trying to focus on bringing it to a greater completion, perhaps. Wouldn't you think that? Well, I'm just focused on the argument. Right. Because there's, there's a lesson in this argument. 
Yes, okay. I'm loving what you're doing. Keep going. Keep going. So the 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 lesson in the argument is uh, something that you know. Can you? Historians. Oh, go. That's a great book. Yeah, yeah. I've got. Seen this? Yeah, David Hackett Fisher. Toward logic of his a logic of historical thought. There's my copy. Oh wait, that's not the right oh, book. Yeah. Oh, it's a good book. <laughs> <laughs> I can't find my copy. Yeah, yeah, outdid the back of the Mogul outdoes the backyard professor. That's not hard to do. Okay, keep going. Keep going. This is wonderful. Um. Anyway, this Joseph's behavior, as described here, seems inconsistent, but it really isn't inconsistent. Okay. Uh, my and other people's. Other scholars' position is that he joined to exploit a relationship with Masons, but ended up exploiting them in a in another way, which angered them. This is what a narcissist does. This is <laughs> this is what he did everywhere well, he went. I was going to say that you in, in your article I elaborated on this morning. That was what you were showing. Is it? Yeah. It, it didn't matter whether he secretly held polygamy quiet and then tried to get everybody to do it or whatever he was doing. He was always getting into trouble. So if he wanted to hold the church together, why did he introduce polygamy? You know, he screwed it up. Shall, shall we check in our seer stone and see if he'll show up and answer us? I've got a Here, seer stone. <laughs> Here's an argument from Brian Hales. Sex with other men's wives is a sin. Therefore, Joseph Smith didn't do it. Oh, I see your angle here. Yeah, right. Okay, here we go. Here we go with Joseph Smith can't contradict himself. Is that, Doing stupid he, things. He can't yeah. do stupid things. <laughs> He's too smart to do that. I never um, do stupid things. I'll drink to that. Okay. Joseph Smith embraced masonry in Nauvoo. Therefore, the Book of Mormon isn't anti-Masonic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's only anti-spurious masonry. Joseph Smith is secretly pro-Mason. Point to the, Im the, impoint in the impulse to harmonize is apologetic, not historical. Historians exploit contradiction. For example, changes in the first vision and Joseph Smith's theology. Yeah. Historians recognize this as a species of the idealist fallacy. Okay. The idealist the, fallacy. Okay. The idealist explain that fallacy one that, yeah, explain that Fisher that. talks about in his book. Uh, the idealist fallacy has all sorts of sub parts to it but it's it's about folks focusing too much on the intellect and not on the whole of the human experience and uh david advocate fisher observes on one of these idealist fallacy parts it's a presupposition of logical consistency is as justified 
as a presumption of the opposite. So humans are act irrationally. It's part of being human. And you can't try to use uh, consistent, rational consistency by itself, especially to make your argument. So, so, so you're saying you're saying that someone like Hales uh, does not like to see contradictions, and so he's going to explain them the away in an idealist fallacy that Joseph Smith, yes, we agree he's human, but he never made mistakes or contradicted himself. Am I getting your comment? Am I getting your direction correct on that one? Well, having sex with other men's wives is a sin. According to Joseph Smith's own scriptures, therefore, he didn't have sex with the married women that he married. That's a zinger, Vogel. That's a zinger. Interesting. Yeah. So that's something to consider. You know. But but, all right. Um, yeah, they say here too, believing himself to be a Masonic restorer. Smith called upon God to inspire him to create ritual in the Masonic mold. And that's, of course, when he sought the true name of deity, like they're saying, which is Masonic tradition having been long lost, and to bring his followers into the presence of the divine. I, I'm still not seeing how they're, they're showing Joseph Smith as being a Masonic restorer is is problematic he's 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 got this idea of being a prophet of god right and so on the on the other side with this other subject okay here's his prophet of god now on this other subject with the masonic view he wants to also be a proper mason and so there's more to masonry than just being friends Although there is a brotherhood involved, but there is also an expansion of, well, Joe Swick himself, one of the authors of this book, uh, told me a few years ago, he said he had a huge argument with Bill Hamblin about the ascension in masonry. Hamblin said, no, there is no ascension in masonry. And Joe Swick fell off his chair and he said, dude, only a non-mason could say something so ignorant. There's no way you can say that. Unless, unless you're not a Mason, because in Masonry, the whole point of the Royal Arch and the Master Mason is the Ascension. So, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because I, I see your point. I get it. I agree with it in large part, but I still don't see how it, maybe I'm, <laughs> it's because I'm so dense, I'm sure. I don't see how it's contradicting his it more extended Masonic reasons, I'll say it that way, for doing what he did. And there are contradictions involved, but his overall effort is to bring in a more, what, a larger worldview, or perhaps maybe even a more cosmological view than just having friends and allies even though he desperately needed them like you said in your article that i talked about this morning um he would hold beliefs 
And then he would deceive people in order to accomplish those beliefs. Ah, so I might be answering my own question here, huh? Just let me keep talking. So perhaps, I, I just, I don't see him as deceiving the Masons in order to become a Mason. And in the process of just saying, well, I only want to join so that I can have allies. They, they wouldn't have let him in. I think that's what these guys, these authors are, are trying to get to here. Does that make sense? Do, do you see that angle or am I missing the boat here? It, it, I, I thought you were going for something else and then you end up in a oh, different sorry. I, I'm, I'm just, this, this is a, this is a complex subject for all of oh, us. Yeah, I love definitely. having your view with Bruno's. That's why I, telephone interview i'm gonna have her on the show again too and perhaps nick if he wants to but sure. anyway yeah, no this is wonderful this is so, a scholarly conversation scholarly conversations happen in slow motion it does, <laughs> they, they take years the audience will have to be patient while we carry on like this for the next six years every sunday night Ooh, <laughs> i just scared them all off <laughs> So let's say let's see what you were trying to say there, um, which was um, I thought you were going for uh, that Joe Smith was a restorer of masonry. Okay, but I don't have that much of a problem with the Nauvoo part. Okay, okay. okay. Uh -huh. Was he was that his aim from the beginning when he's dictating the Book of Mormon? And on up before he gets there? Oh. Or did he contradict himself? Did he just simply contradict himself? Uh, we'll, That's interesting. We'll get, to, we'll get to parts where I have quotes. Sure, yeah, yeah. Carry on. It's, you bet. It's, um, in 1839, he says, you know, you're on, you're going in the wrong direction if you're trying to strengthen relationships with oaths you know, that bind people. And then three years later, he's introducing his own endowment and joining masonry, you know? Uh -huh. And so that statement, he made that statement. People saw that as uh, being conflicting with what the Danites were doing, you know, with their Masonic-like oaths binding themselves together. Yeah, they did. And, and they do talk about that. It's interesting it's because I, I, I told Cheryl, I said, you know, I, I'm not trying to offend you, dear. I'm really not. And she's actually here in the audience. So I know. I, told her, I said, I really did not like that Danite chapter. Sure. It was it was too dense for me. And she said, oh, man, that's the one I wrote. And I felt like a real dork then, you know. I always do stupid stuff like that. So I am going to <laughs> reinvestigate that chapter more carefully because I obviously have missed I, I miss a lot but I miss something major there but so so how how next do you want to explore this uh theme we're just going to keep on going huh we're going to keep on going through absolutely absolutely that's what I mean yeah. next oh so step. continue right continue uh, that's what I mean you read that part that was a part I had underlined, and I would men mention that he okay, he's this big restorer of masonry, but where, where's that long there lost? Is no word? He was where's the, the word? Where's, the, where's the lost 
name of God in on on um well, did you live, Cheryl said we think he, the that they lost it again. So there's oh. he didn't restore the 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 missing word uh or ineffable name of God. He didn't restore it. And they say several times. How, ago, do we, how do we know I, that? How do we know when that? I was, when I was reading this, I was going, okay, where's this word? I, I never got to what Joseph Smith restored the word. And then on Mormonism Live. But, but just weeks, because it's not in public doesn't mean he didn't restore it. You're assuming, you, you it appears to me that you're assuming it has to be spread in public, but it's not in masonry. So why would it have been in Joseph Smith's view? Well, they say that was just as, one of Justice Smith's goals was sure. to restore the lost word. Right. Well, where is it? If you haven't found it, it's not restored for you. But that doesn't mean it's not restored, right? Right. No, it means yes. it hasn't been. <laughs> just because we're ignorant of it doesn't mean it's not out there and existing. Well, that's an argument from ignorance. No, well, in some respects, yes. But on the other hand, that still is yeah. not proof that the word wasn't restored. Someone out there might have it. We just don't know. But you can't right? talk about it if you don't have any evidence. Sure you can. You just can't prove it. But you can talk about anything you want without evidence. I'm not trying to argue. I'm just discussing. I know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so. Okay. As Cheryl said, they think that it was lost again. Which seems a little convenient. But. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay, we'll move on. Um, <laughs> to the next page, 21. Uh, we will then, this is the goals of the authors. We will right, then right. provide an explanation of Masonic Midrash, which is an interesting uh uh, addition to my thinking, which is, uh, well, we, we've always talked about just Smith and doing pseudepigrapha or mid or midrash type writing, and yeah. the the uh, authors here point out that that's exactly what the Masons were doing with the biblical stories, which is and true, yeah, and yeah. extra biblical stories about Hiram Abbott, you know, and Joseph Smith outmasoned the Masons, yeah, but. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Crispin will love that. <laughs> Sorry, so this okay. Masonic Midrash and the way Joseph used it to produce canonical LDS texts, uh, social structures, and rituals. This Masonic technique affected the way Smith explained his own experiences in restoring true Masonry from his first vision to his presidential campaign. We will explore the proliferation of Mormon Masonic lodges during the Nauvoo period and the Masonic imagery that surrounded the Mormon leader's death. <laughs> okay, so this is what I'm talking about. The meta-narrative is that this whole, his whole life, even the first vision, this is where we have this meta-narrative and we've got to try to, to bend everything to fit this meta narrative, it's more about the ingenuity of the investigator than it is about what was happening in the past. 
Um, it, interesting take. Yeah. I have a comment here. Wish they had invited Cheryl to be part of the discussion. They should <laughs> go in and include her. That might be fun fireworks, huh? <laughs> uh, not my thing, really. But we'll see. Maybe I'll have her without you so that you guys don't start yelling at each other. <laughs> right. No, it's good to get all sides out. I love this. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yep. So, um, so we have this. Uh... Cheryl says, yes, let's get it on, man. Head to head. <laughs> Uh, you knew that. Yeah. You knew she would. She is a feisty one. She's very good at what she does, too. So yeah. we are having fun seeing another view. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, let me lay out my view. Absolutely. And, yeah. Um, Myth-making was not Joseph Smith's stated purpose in writing his history. He says, this is what he starts out as history, owing to the many reports which have been put in circulation by evil design, evil disposed and designing persons in relation to the rise and progress of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, all of which have been designed by authors thereof to militate against the character of the church and its progress in the world. So those guys are doing the fiction, not just Smith. I have been induced to write this history to disabuse the public mind, to put all inquirers after the truth in possession of the facts as they have transpired in relation to both myself and the church so far as I have such facts in my possession. In this history, I shall present the various events in relation to this church in truth and righteousness as they have transpired or as they at present exist being now uh, 1838 basically so he's going he's going to write factual history he isn't going to write the midrash about his life he's trying to present oh, no, no, but i mean okay hold on yeah i i agree however we all know that he wrote a midrash on the bible even Kevin Barney says that. Well, I would so, say he wrote he did so end there, up writing a midrash, here a midrash. what's that he did end up writing a midrash, a midrash of his own life, even though he's saying he's not going to. But not a Masonic midrash. How do you <laughs> it's, know? It's it's fiction what he wrote. Well, of course, angels, angels play. Masonic, Masonic legend. Masonic legend is fiction, though. But that doesn't mean it's valueless. But he, he would midrash that to That's help him out. Huh? It's not the value of it is I don't care about. Um, <laughs> I understand for to decide how valuable Smith, something is. But Joseph Smith did care about it, though. Otherwise, why would he have about what? Involved? About what? Masonry, about oh. having it in his life and all. Well, he cared about it in a negative way, and then he cared about it in a sort of positive way. He had a consistent view when he. When he introduced masonry in Nauvoo, he called it a, the, an apostate endowment, you know, an apostate priesthood. And okay. so he, that's the same, and, and yet, the same yet, view he had in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, good point. And yet he pursued it all the way to the end of the day he died. 
So he did carry. Well, he, had, he also had the Jupiter talisman. Yes, he did. <laughs> Absolutely. Him, uh, introduced that idea. So he had a lot of things until the day he died. He had everything. He That's ever because did. he was the grand restorer. <laughs> right? Uh, he restored. He brought everything into whatever. his life. He could. Yeah. Whatever that was at any given time was different. Yeah. <laughs> he restored it, then he restored it again, then he restored it again, then he restored it again. Right. Because <laughs> that makes restore a little uh, less um, <laughs> defined or important as it once was. But once you restore it so many times, or it changes so many got, times. How many times can you restore something? Yeah. Or else he got a more full, complete knowledge on thinking about it for a few years and brought more in. That's the, that's another way to look at that. But so yeah, now, contradictions are there. Now I'm going to enter. Oh, so speaking of contradictions. Um, okay. The Smith later, Smith's later change of attitude did not go unnoticed. Decades later, Ebenezer Robinson, who was the editor of the, editor of the Times and Seasons, and a member of the Nauvoo Masonic Lodge, said, Hitherto the church had strenuously opposed secret societies such as Freemasons and Knights of Pythias. Whatever that, I don't know. What where where are you at? What page are you reading on, Dan? I'm reading off of my own thing, which oh, is, okay. um, if you want, it's, it's in a, a jur um, periodical called The Return in okay. 19... I mean, 1890, um, Ebenezer Robinson was reminiscing about his own history, and okay, he started, awesome. he's awesome. talked about this. So, uh, so they, the church strenuously opposed secret societies such as Freemasons and the Knights of Pythias, not considering the Order of Enoch and Danites of that class, but after... Dr. John C. Bennett came into the church, a great change of sentiment seemed to take place. So that's his statement. Then James Colin Brewster, who started his own off branch, who became a leader of a dissident Mormon group, saw the endowment as a contradiction of earlier teachings. In 1849, Brewster declared that the church had fallen by imperceptible degrees until 1842, when the fatal step was taken by the introduction of a secret order in direct violation of almost every command of the gospel of Christ. The priesthood does not consist in high-sounding titles, in secret combinations, in key words and mysteries, he wrote. So, Gotta get a drink. Um, I just did that like the backyard. That's professor. good. That's good. I'm gonna do that too, <laughs> by golly. <laughs> so expound on that comment that you just read. Oh. Well, he sees uh, objecting to the the endowment. <laughs> He's seeing it as a contradiction of their earlier teachings. Uh -huh. They're both so it didn't go unnoticed. It was something. It was a contradiction to them. 
Okay. Joseph, <laughs> Joseph Smith was a secretly a Mason. He hit it really well. Anyway. Um, well, they're not saying he was secretly a Mason. No. Yeah, right. No. Right. Okay, I'm just joking. I'm, it's okay. my joke. Yeah, it's yeah. my humor. Every now and then I'll throw it hey, in there. I'm telling you, I love it when you throw that out. <laughs> I just want to make sure people realize that you're not falsely accusing them because you don't uh, do that as a historian. So at least you better not. Unless his name okay. is oh no wait. <laughs> Lou Midgley. No. Um carry on. So I'm going into chapter one now. Okay. And um, legends of the craft, and George Oliver, and you know the rest of the yeah, yeah, George Oliver, he was wow, yeah, it's an interesting book. Or yeah. he wrote several books actually, but he wrote what? Several books. Yeah, yeah. He the did. main one well, is the Oliver was very prolific, very wordy yeah. too. He's hard to read, but wow, what a concept! Yeah, he's something. <laughs> well. <laughs> Yeah, we'll come in about him later. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, he's in that genre of romantic writer. He's not a historian. Who he's Oliver? A, he's he's a he's a romantic writer of history. Yeah, he he accepted the Masonic legend as actual history. Oh, he, back, he made back then, that was the essence of masonry, more or less. They they studied the legends and the symbols. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't he wasn't into history. You know, this happened and then this happened and this. Well, he kind of followed he, it chronologically, but he didn't have it, it, his methodology was very poor. Yeah, back then they didn't give a damn about methodology, though. They were expounding the craft's legends. So, I mean, how do you, well, how, do you give, how do you give legend as history through symbolism, like the Masons were saying? So, yeah, it's all good. He definitely wrote differently than we do today. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it was a style of the time in a way. It was. Other people understood that he was talking Very about Victorian. Stuff stuff beyond masonry he was speculating beyond masonry okay um at any rate well uh, he yeah he was developing the masonic legends with all the other masons that's true yeah yeah that's that's how they were that's how they were doing it they had the yeah yeah Good anyway point. so uh page 11 uh Page 11, you skipped the best part. Oh, oh, well, you want to talk about that? No, I'm, I'm, I'm just hassling you. No, uh, here's, my, here's my quick note on uh -huh. this first part of chapter one. After I read the chapter uh, again this afternoon, uh, the philosophical system of Freemasonry, my note at the top of this says, this chapter establishes the Christian character of Freemasonry. That was the uh, overarching impression I got after reading it this last time this afternoon is I realized, wow, I mean, there, maybe today, today's Mason. See, when I was in Lodge a few years back, they said, oh, no, 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 we're not a religion. And that's okay. That's fine. But it hasn't always been that way. 
uh, early on, they recognize, and this is where Oliver, like you're saying, Oliver, you know, he, he adds, I mean, he takes it all the way back into, interestingly, a pre-mortal existence with God and the angels being Freemasons. And then Adam was the first mortal Mason, man. But, yeah. but they say, yeah, back then they say, oh, yeah, the basis of Masonry was Christianity. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your fellow man. Love God. Yeah. That later did change after the William Morgan affair. And Masonry just went downhill from that point. But yeah, Oliver was something else. So so that was my overall impression of this. So you're going to page... Uh, 11. 11. They, okay. So they were concerned with showing the virtues of Masonry against critics Critics were trying to downgrade Masonry and connect it with the mystery cults and with evil. And they were trying to say, no, Masonry has all these great virtues. And everyone that has uh, promoted these virtues were also Masons. <laughs> you know? Okay. Uh -huh. So, and that's the simple, simple formula that he followed in writing the history of Masonry. It was anybody... He just followed the patriarchs, you know, the, all the good people were Masons, you know, and that's basically how he uh, handled it. He was trying to um, overturn people that were suspicious of Masonry and its secrets because their secrets made uh, gossip and rumors go like crazy. And um, they thought they were doing bad things. And so he was he and other authors were trying to turn that image around that yeah um, that they, they actually have all these high ideals and virtues and uh all these great people in the past that you believe in in the bible are uh also masons it was right. a masonic apologetic not to be confused with masonry it's like taking um the heartlanders as representing mormonism <laughs> you know <laughs> Interesting. Uh -huh. okay. After all, so, every lodge had their own basic rights, although there was a core that they eventually agreed upon. But even that does evolve. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh -huh. It wasn't an evolutionary thing. What's that? It was evolutionary, definitely. I mean, they yeah. adding adding different uh, degrees and even right. groups. Right. Even whole different groups that off branched, you know, from them. Um, so, um, on page from at the bottom of page eleven, as we will be as will be discussed in chapter four, the Christian aspect of Freemasonry was profoundly appealing to Joseph Jr. I, mean, I don't know how they know this, but. Even as a young man, he found masonry a fitting vehicle for his spiritual longings. Where, where did they get this? I don't know. The fact that the continued relevance of Christian Freemasonry was debated by Masons may be one reason Smith saw a need for its restoration. And over on the page 12, uh -huh. and he would make it his life's work. To recover what he considered lost and missing aspect and missing aspects of 
religion and Freemasonry in order to restore them to a prominent place in the lives of his associates. I mean, where is this? Well, maybe they're summing up, since this is the first chapter, maybe oh. they're just taking the, the evidence that they expand on in the later chapters and sum it up here to keep your reading to show why that. They could be doing that, but they never do. That's oh, my point. Uh, I think you can't. How can you know what you, the young Joseph Smith? I do? mean, the chapter and, on the book of Abraham. I'm just saying. Well, the first time he talks, he writes the Book of Mormon, and the Book of Mormon's anti-Masonic. Because of the political situation in America, like you told me, yes. Yeah, he's responding to the uh, the election of 1828 and Andrew Jackson, a Mason, yeah. right, a worshipful master of Tennessee, a Tennessee Lodge, is running for president. He's a Masonic king. He's a Masonic. You know, king. we're going to have a king in America. You know, at the head of the country, who also was a brutal <laughs> general. During the War of 1812, had this great reputation, you know, of yeah. um, winning wars. I mean, that's the kind of guy you have running for president. We're going down the tubes, you know, people were afraid, and it was people were the conservatives were predicting yeah. the end of the union. Right. This is it, it's over. You know, you, if you elect this guy, and so he's amazing. Makes, so Joseph Smith was the anti Jackson. Yes, he was. It, the okay. Book of Mormon is not just... Okay, when, when Martin Harris said the Book of Mormon is anti-Masonic Bible, there's right. a lot more to that. So that's what I wanted to find out in my 1989 article, but Mormonism's anti-Masonic Bible, um, mm -hmm. was it printed, uh, published in the uh, Journal of uh, John Whitmer Historical Association. Mm -hmm. um, that was to show... What did Martin Harris mean by anti-Masonic Bible? He wasn't just seeing secret combinations. He was seeing a lot of things. And it was actually anti-Jackson. Did he ever explain what he meant? Do we know? No, but he did predict that Jackson would be the last president. Really? So, yeah. So Jackson would be the last president. And... Um, some people in Palmyra made fun of that, that it didn't happen, you know. So, um, so anyway, um, <clears throat> so there was a lot more that was going on, a lot more when you read the Book of Mormon was going, masonry was just one aspect of uh, Andrew Jackson that, people objected to the, okay, now the context the context these guys are also bringing that it doesn't necessarily contradict what you're saying in fact i think historically you're probably on the right track i would suspect yet there was discussion and and they showed different different angles of this freemason situation during all of this, all the way through the 1830s, when Joseph Smith produced his Book of Mormon and he had his Angel Moroni visits and all that, where mm -hmm. there were, and after William Morgan was murdered, uh, that's when people really started getting furious at the Masons and all. 
and there were, I'm going to simplify this, <laughs> bad guys versus good guys within masonry. And perhaps the, and again, this almost gets us back to a meta narrative in a way that Jackson would be in the negative Mason view, since that is who Joseph Smith was against, as was Martin Harris and several other Joseph Smith's associates who was hanging out with him. And so, of course, he would also indicate Joseph would put the anti-Masonic stuff in the Book of Mormon. And then, of course, the people who were anti-Jackson would say, yeah, yeah, this is an anti-Masonic Bible. But since Masonic had good and bad, they were pointing to the These guys call it spurious masonry. There's a, a good good masonry and spurious masonry. So their historical approach appears to me to say Joseph Smith was wanting to get rid of spurious masonry by bringing in more truth. Restore free masonry is, is how they are putting it. So I can, I can see how your interpretation is historically with the broader political arena, but so are these guys with the way they've understood how masonry was occurring during that time also. It wasn't just American politics without masonry. It was the it was the spurious Masonic area that Joseph Smith was focusing on, which happened to include the American political arena also. Does that make sense? You see what I mean? I'm just trying to see how it's, I'm just trying to see not a meta narrative, but just the fuller context with the Masonic information that we have in this book, tying it in with your information on how there's a, anti-Masonic Book of Mormon. So yes, Joseph Smith contradicts himself with this anti-Mason stance and then later becomes pro-Mason. But the contradiction is if we limit it just to the American political scene. Does that make sense? Because they don't, they don't, they, I don't think these guys at all, I know Joe Swick, I don't think at all he's going to try to ever say, oh, well, Joseph Smith can't ever be seen to contradict himself. In fact, Joe and I talked several hours on the phone to that effect. Uh, so does that make sense where I, I think I'm trying to tie in the whole package here? It appears to me like you're trying to say these guys are inventing their med meta narrative and you're narrowing the historical focus, but on a broader historical focus, yours is included and accurate, but it still explains it. Even though Joseph Smith contradicted himself, he still was a Masonic restorer. Does that make sense? I don't know if I, I'm wording this he right. He made that claim in Nauvoo. What's that? He, he, the claim was made in Nauvoo when he introduced the endowment. Oh, about not be, not masonry. Yeah, but well, that's true. Yeah, good point. So the spurious masons to Masonic writers 
weren't themselves or any but any Mason. It was spurious masonry was the heathen nations, the mysteries, cult mystery cults, basically, of the heathen nations that they were being accused of, Masons were being accused of coming out of the mystery cults. And they're saying, no, they their line is Adam and the patriarchs and uh, people like Cain, he's the guy that apostatized from Masonry and started another line. And it's the heathen nations that uh, in various forms have... Well, heathen Masons weren't the spurious Masonry. No, Pardon? the spur. I, I'm not sure. I'll check into that. I'll well, I'll that be talking about we, some of that, but um, okay, yeah, yeah. Let's uh, get into that. That's interesting. I haven't seen that theory. angle yet, so you might have something I don't have. So, so to Joseph Smith, Oliver, George Oliver is talking about the heathen nations being the spurious masons, and uh, that the masonry didn't come out of. The mystery cults. The mystery cults came out of masonry. Is basically his apologetic defense of masonry. Mm -hmm. And um, but for now, okay. So spurious masonry to Joseph Smith was all of masons. They they were all apostate. You know, he didn't think that oh, there were true masons and spurs masons. He he didn't have the same view as Oliver, so I don't see why how that um, using that part of Oliver's presentation actually helps. Uh huh. I, I don't see that how that talking about spurious masonry helps anything. Interesting. Okay, I see your approach in the Book of Mormon. The secret combinations that will appear in the latter days have secret signs and secret words. That's how you identify them. There isn't like a true masonry. And the Mormon says so. <laughs> yeah, well, there isn't a true masonry with secret signs and secret words over here and a fake or spurious masonry over here with the same or with the same, actually, just borrowed it exactly. I'm sure, they would. Well, okay. <laughs> the, spur the spurious Mormons may have a false temple endowment from the Mormons out of Utah. I mean, Denver Snuffer is a spurious prophet, but he claims he has a seer stone and he can translate metal plates too, and he's restoring the Book of Mormon. So, from one point, he's spurious, but from Denver Snuffer's group, He's the true prophet and the other ones. So, I mean, so that gets, that gets the, real subjective. The secret signs and the secret words were the identifying features of secret combinations that the Book of Mormon is warning about. True. So we don't find a group with the same secret signs or secret words in the Book of Mormon being the true anything we just have one group using secret signs and secret words as being secret combinations and inspired by the devil okay so from your take then so from your take then the book of mormon would be anti-masonic across the board it wouldn't matter if they're spurious or true 
There was no spurious masons. Right, right. Oliver that's wasn't talking about spurious that, masons. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I see your point. Spurious, the spurious masons that he was describing came out of masonry. They were apostate, and they became the mystery cults, the Egyptians. Okay, uh -huh. they became uh -huh. the Egyptians and uh, okay. some other groups that they named, like you know, the yeah, Greeks. Yeah, interesting. You know. Uh, Anyway, so, um, so we're talking about George Oliver. We're, there was also William Hutchinson, Salem Town. Now, Salem Town, he said, uh, we're, so we're talking about how Oliver wanted to make Adam a mason. And talks about Adam the mason and the first lodge and, the, you know, right. things go on like that. Uh, and Moses, you know, being the first guy that organized the uh, – masonry in, into an actual lodge and uh -huh. so J, J, uh, Salem Town in his books A System of Speculative Masonry in Salem, New York 1818 um, even before Oliver you know let it be remarked in this place and carefully recollected by every reader that when mention is made of Noah, Abraham, Moses and others who lived before the building of the first temple, Solomon's temple, that's where uh -huh. masonry really uh, claims to have come from. Uh -huh. um, that the Masonic character and knowledge of those persons is to be understood as in a qualified sense. It is not meant to be asserted that they belong to regular bodies and associated with as members of this institution. It is not pretended that they were initiated into the order, as in modern times. Neither is it supposed that they were known by the, na by the name or style of Mason. All we wish to have understood is that Noah and others after him embraced and taught such geometrical and moral principles as were fundamental in the first establishment of the institution, when duly organized and such as are essential in the system of speculative masonry as it now exists, we therefore mean to say that many principles peculiar to our institution were understood and patronized by those men. Such, we feel confident, is the fact. Hence, we claim them as ancient patrons mm -hmm. because through their hands have been transmitted those excellent principles which now characterize speculative masonry. So they knew what they're, they knew what they're doing, okay? So mm -hmm. Solomon's Temple is where masonry claimed to have begun. That's where it was organized in the lodges, etc. Yeah. Before that, he's trying to say that all these good people were, they held principles and defended principles that the same principles that Masons defend today and we claim them, we claim them as patrons, you know, of our order. Right. That's it. And so um these also are Masonic writers. They're not, they don't, they're, they don't represent the institution or 
or this who's, who's they are you who's they are you talking about oh uh the three authors uh, george oliver william H hutchinson salem town they are the authors masonic hey. authors and they're none of this stuff they're writing is in masonry masonry and their ceremonies don't oh, claim any of this stuff now sorry i'll strongly disagree with you there <laughs> They Did were they Adam as, a, as a Mason. That that's like saying nothing Hugh Nibley wrote is is in Mormonism. Yeah, that would be silly. Everything Oliver writes is in Masonry. He just adds a whole lot more that's not because he is elaborating on the legends, of course. But I mean, all of them were Masons. They they aren't going to write non-Mason stuff. They did for thirty books. No, I, th I think you're missing. Well, masonry claims to come from Solomon's Temple. They might have legendary stories like Enoch. Well, that's today's version, but it wasn't in Joseph Smith. And they and they make uh, dramatize biblical scenes. But the royal arch goes back to the royal arch goes back to the tabernacle in the desert. So I mean, Solomon's Temple is not the beginning. And Oliver, of course, he was elaborating the legends, yes. Yeah. But there were, back then, it was a Christian uh, basis, so to speak. So, I mean, the Masons back then took it all the way back to Adam. But they just were because, elaborating because, on their own. They're not <laughs> repeating stuff that they learned in some kind of ceremony somewhere. They are making now, history here. They are making the history here. By using their methodology, I don't, I don't. I think you're misunderstanding something there. I'll check into that. That's that's fascinating to see. No, what I'm saying is that they're claiming these authors, not masonry, right? These authors are claiming all these patriarchs as masons. That's because that's what masonry believed in Joseph Smith's day, Dan. <laughs> they have since cut that stuff. Not masonry. Out. People that but, read these authors yeah. did masonry itself okay. had that thing i think i'll check into that that's interesting i i see your angle i see your angle so okay that, that's what makes these discussions fun. yeah yeah that's that's uh, i mean i'm sure somebody could read this and think that's what masons believe especially if they didn't ever read the text of their ceremonies uh, yeah. so um so just lay that there um That the the words used in the first three, three I know you're going to talk about Royal Arch, but the words no, used no in the first I was three just getting ready to say we've been going an hour and forty minutes. Is that too long? No, no, oh no, uh -uh. Oh. with you? Are you kidding? But but let's uh, I could talk to you all night, dude. <laughs> Let let's let's add what you were going to just start saying. Let, let let's get the next chunk in here and then let's call it a night and we'll meet next okay, week okay whenever you want to quit i'm yeah i'm i'm, I'm good. just here yeah yeah no keep going your, it's your show <laughs> hey you're you're the i'm just happy guest. to be here and uh, no, thanks for giving me the opportunity to absolutely to i love having you on the show this is fantastic <laughs> so i was just going to say that the secret words come from Solomon's temple in the first three degrees. Okay. 
you know, the pillars in Solomon's yeah. temple. Okay, yeah. so um, Joseph Smith, though, when we're talking about the patriarchs, I'm just going to give a little bit of context about Joseph Smith. Sure, sure. Uh, before uh, Nauvoo, Joseph Smith only traced the priesthood through Adam and the priesthood. He didn't mention anything about masonry or anything. It was a high priesthood being transmitted through Adam up through the patriarchs, through uh, Melchizedek and uh, Abraham and on up. And he was trying to establish the high priesthood among his followers, and they were giving him a hard time. And so he traced it back. He, he invented history in order to prove that, that the high priesthood, which the Old Testament doesn't talk about, mm -hmm. uh, this lineage from Adam on up, all the high priests, and they finally meet in the valley of uh, Adam on Diamond. And uh -huh. so he was cr creating that. And with the book of Abraham, he, he finally established that in an actual ancient text. But uh, Joseph Smith's discussion of the high priesthood among the patriarchs began in September 1832. That's in DNC 84. To justify his introduction of the high priesthood in June... 1831. This okay. came from, and which he was getting hard, to, uh, some of his followers weren't buying it. Uh, this came from Alma 13 in the Book of Mormon. The famous Melchizedek and, chapter, yeah. Which borrowed its ideas from Hebrews 7. It was an expansion of Hebrews chapter 7, where Jesus is a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. No, no mention of masonry or anything like it. Interesting, yeah. If he were pro-mason from the start, this this would have been a good time to maybe introduce some of that stuff. But uh, no, he waits until Nauvoo, you know, to bring it out. This is where Oliver says that Masonic traditions could only be pure when united with true worship of God. And hence, they were miserably perverted amongst idolatrous nations until nothing remained. So that's the pure and spurious. He's defining it. It's among the, the idolatrous nations. They turned it into idolatry. You know? But they're um, still masons. They're just spurious masons. They're spurious. And until, until they degenerated to nothing. Um, so, um, no, I'm almost done with this chapter. So okay. this been on the dispensationalism, um, of course, dispensationalism is ubiquitous, uh, to say the least, but, um, the authors say purity of religion was inextricably linked with the purity of Freemasonry. When one deteriorated, so did the other. So this is the same thing as what Oliver was saying. Now, uh -huh. um, uh, so the, the authors actually recognize that it's a mystery religions, just like I explained. Uh, he applied the term spurious masonry to corruptions of truth first taught by Noah and passed down through the heathen to or Gentile line. 
Then they say, this is the lens through which uh, to see Smith's effort to translate the Book of Mormon and to restore both the, a church and an inspired revision of the Bible. The inspired revision of the Bible is like the Book of Mormon, anti-Masonic. There's no pro-Masonry in the revision. It talks about Cain making an oath with Satan and uh, Lamech uh, killing Irad for the oath's sake. Mm -hmm. um, some have, we'll come back to these things, some of these things later also when they get to sure. it. Sure. Some have seen a great disparity between Smith's earliest expressed opinions and actions regarding the craft and what he said and did in Nauvoo. It may seem inconsistent for the same man to hold his brother, or to, excuse me, it may seem inconsistent for the same man who told his brother, Hiram, to beware uh -huh. of Freemasons in 1826, which is actually the 2nd of December, 1830, uh -huh. to not only become a Freemason himself, but encourage the majority of his adult male followers to do so as well. So right there we have that um, idealist fallacy of this inconsistent, therefore, um, we need to use this spurious masonry thing to get out of this inconsistency. Um, so that letter, I'll just read a portion of that. Uh, and this letter is for, from who? The, uh, Joseph Smith writing to his brother Hiram from Ohio. Okay, too high. Uh, Hiram and Hiram is in Colesville with uh, Joseph Smith Seniors actually in Fayette, and uh -huh. he wants Hiram to bring the, their father to uh, Ohio, but to be careful because the Freemasons are after him. And as it turns out, that the uh, a lot of the free, Freemasons, like Alexander McIntyre, uh, their physician uh, was a Freemason, and he was one of the leaders of this um, what they think is a mob anyway and Levi Daggett also who sued Hiram so on the 2nd of December 1830 Smith writes a letter to Hiram in in New York to beware of Freemasons McIntyre which is Alexander McIntyre heard that you were in Manchester and he got a warrant and went to your father's to distress the family. But Harrison, that's Samuel Harrison Smith, mm -hmm. overheard their talk and they said that they cared not for the debt if they could obtain your body. They were there with carriages. Sort of sounds like William Morgan. Um, mm -hmm. Therefore, beware of Freemasons. Masonic mm -hmm. records indicate that the family physician of Alexander McIntyre and Levi Daggett, who sued Hiram and issued a warrant for his arrest, were both members of Palmyra's Masonic Lodge. Uh, in his letter to Hiram, Joseph not only revealed an anti-Masonic bias, but expressed his belief that Masons were among the chief persecutors of the Mormons in New York. And this is the letter Joseph Smith is warning Hiram, yeah, about being aware, being what be aware of the Masons, the Masons, because well, and so Joseph Smith had left New York with the uh, group, 
one group. Three, there was like three major groups that uh, migrated at different times to right. uh, Kirtland area. And um, one of the motivators to move was that the enemy in secret chambers seeketh your lives, uh, which I believe is an allusion to the Masons. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So yeah, that from your, from your position, that letter would be evidence for his anti-Masonry. Now, 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 when did he write that? The 2nd of December, 1830. Yeah. So see, yeah, there's, there's. The, he's over. He's already. The Mormon was just out. Yeah. He's in Kirtland. Right. Right. Okay. Interesting. Okay, well, uh, I I don't have a call in like Mormonism Live. Maybe oh, when I get really sophisticated, oh, yeah. I'll what have some call in. <laughs> I've got to set up a call in number, Vogel. <laughs> Maybe between now and next Sunday, I can do that. Hey, I'm going to give it a shot. What the heck? We'll see how, how it about, goes. Um, how about slides? Or slides, yeah. Yeah, that would be fun too. Um, yeah. I guess, hey. I'll uh, be reading I'm, the comments and I'll try it next time to respond. Well, well I mean, yeah. I might even respond in writing below. If you if you make comments below, I'll probably respond. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's, yeah. I'll figure out a way to where we can interact a little bit. Um, I've been trying to read some and put them on screen. So thank you everybody for all your comments, of course. Now, next week, Sunday evening, six o'clock, Dan and I will return and we're going to continue exploring this fabulous book, Method Infinite, Freemasonry and the Mormon Restoration. And we will continue seeing Dan Vogel's view on his take on the masonry. So in the meantime, we've been at it. Yeah, we've done pretty good, Dan. An hour and 50 minutes. Yeah, we broke the no, we got through uh, two parts anyway. That was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, we broke the rules. So that is what yeah. makes this so much fun. <laughs> it's my show. I can break the rules. <laughs> All right, man. Hey, well, thanks uh, everybody for coming. Yeah, I absolutely. Really appreciate um, I appreciate you being here. Yep. It has been really fun and interesting. Uh, we will be back. I'll be back Sunday morning at 10 unless I do a, a special surprise session. Who knows? You'll never know me. That's I keep you guessing. That's why you love me, I hear. So anyway, Dan, thank you so much for coming Thanks. on. And for uh, me. we will see you next Sunday night, 6 o'clock. In the meantime, have a fantastic week, every single one of you. Thank you and appreciate all your support. Oh, then I highlighted it. Woohoo! Here we go.